that the title is Behold, He Comes. Now, I'm going to do a little bit of a diversion here for just a minute. Bear with me. For several years now, and I, truthfully, I can't tell you how many years, but for several years, I have um, gotten every day, like from Sunday to Sunday, I have gotten something that uh, comes out of um, somewhere in Arizona. I, I, I believe it's Phoenix, but I'm not positive. But it is called Grace Gems. Some of you may get them. I don't know. Maybe you get that publication. It's called Grace Gems. But, but it sounds, uh, it, what it has is um, writings from different Puritan writers. Mm. So it's old. I mean, you know, the things that you see there are old. I mean, older than us. <laughs> because I want to quote one of the Grace Gems that I read. And it was from Thomas Watson. And he lived 1620 to 1689 or 86, 86. But I, I read it and I thought, oh, this is just too good. Here we are at Bible study. We need to know something about the Bible. We need to hear this. And I want you to, I picked out a few things that he said, and I, and I want you to listen to this. He said, study the scriptures. It's a copy of God's will. Mm -hmm. Then he said, this blessed book will fill your head with knowledge and your heart with grace. Mm. Wow. Mm. And then he said, there is majesty sparkling in every line of scripture. That's, that's beautiful. I mean, we've talked about some of the sparkles mm. and, and, you know, the different things. But he said that uh, there's melody in Scripture. There's divinity in Scripture. He says Scripture is profitable, and Scripture should be read with reverence and affection. And then he said it is a love letter sent to you from God. And as we get into this, this short little section, which is only... Um, what is it, 16 verses, something like that, 17 verses? Oh, it's not even that long. Anyway, it's just this, this short little thing. Think about that. We're going to get some knowledge, but primarily we're going to get our hearts full of grace if we listen to it. We're going to see divinity, divinity in it, and we ought to approach it with affection and with reverence. But it's a love letter that is sent to us. There is one, in, in verse 16, there's this one phrase, and you'll say, well, aren't you jumping ahead? Yes, I am, but I want you to see this. It says, my beloved is mine, and I am his. This is a wedding poem. They're already married. They are in covenantal intimacy already. This is not something that is um, uh, a surprise because we've been teaching this right from the very beginning, mm -hmm. that this is a married couple and they, what we see here is in the intimacies of marriage. And it's not something that should make us blush or anything like that. This is something that uh, we need to recognize this. And because it is, there, there's reoccurring refrains of this. It, it, we, here it says, my beloved is mine and I am his. 
in chapter three or six, it's going to say that. And in chapter seven, it's going to say that. It's reiterated and repeated several times. Now, I want us to realize something here. And this is beautiful because it looks back to other covenants. In Genesis, we're told how God made everything. We're told how he made the land animals, the bird animals, the sea animals. We're told all that. And then in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, this is beautiful. But just before this, God has put Adam in a sleep. And he has taken out a bone from his side. And he has made a woman for Adam. Now, there's a whole bunch that could be said about that. He didn't take a bone from his head where she would dominate over him. He didn't take a bone from his foot where he could pounce all over her and dominate her and step on her. It was from his side so that he could embrace her and hold on to her. Have you ever tried to hold on to an ostrich? (laughs) Have you ever tried to love a kangaroo? You know, do you see what I'm getting at? Because the first thing that he says, it's a, po- it's a poem, it's a love song in itself in chapter 2, verse 23. This at last is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, really, that's a love song right there. And then we see this covenant. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, that's severance, and hold fast to his wife, that's permanence, and they shall become one flesh. That's unity. That's one of the covenants that we see when we think about covenant promises or living in a covenantal uh, relationship. And another one is, and I think this is really one that we need to mention too. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, God told Moses, He says, I want you to go to the children of Israel, tell them I've heard their cries, and, and He says, I want you to tell the Israelites this tell them, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. Then in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 12, to me, this is beautiful too. Um, it's, among, it's among the sections, at least in my, in my Bible. Maybe it's just the ESV, I don't know. But it's, it's called uh, Blessings for Obedience. And that's, that's the section it's in, and there's different blessings that, that are in there. But one of them in verse 12 is this, I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. That's covenant. That's covenant. And this whole thing about my beloved is mine, and I am his, really looks back to those covenants about, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And um, God's going to be their their God. He's going to be with them and they will be his people. So this is what we talk about when we think about covenant relationships. Now, let's go back and 
let's, let's look at this. Um, we've already read it here. There is a, right within this, there is a tremendous amount of sexuality, sex, sexuality here in these nine verses. Now, quite frankly, we don't necessarily recognize it in our day and age because some things are said a little bit differently and, and whatnot. Um, one of the, I think it was uh, um, O'Donnell said that it is candid, but it's not crude. Um, it is very descriptive, but it ain't dirty. Uh, it's just very forthright about wedded love. Uh, and what we're going to hear here, 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 what we're going to H-E-A-R, H-E-R-E, what we're going to hear here is the voices of spring. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, what, that's what we're going to zero in on. And it's broken down this way. He approaches her in verses 2, 8 and 9. He invites, uh, verses, or in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, he invites her to intimacy in verses 10 through 15, and in verses 16 and 17, we see she accepts. Now, we need to keep this in mind. This is covenantal intimacy. It's a wedding poem where the couple's already married, and springtime is the setting. And back during this time in the East, and maybe wherever there was civilization, uh, Every culture viewed springtime as a time for love. And when you stop to think about it, it's kind of that way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it really it's is kind of that way even here, everywhere. So. You know, this is a this is a love time. Now, let's look at verses eight and nine. There is some sort of an at least an emotional distance and a yearning to overcome whatever that distance is. Um, because that's kind of where the break is. Um, there's some sort of a distance there. And look at what she says in verse 8. She says, The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes. See that? Behold? That means see? And there's a there's an exponential type of excitement here. I mean, this isn't a, oh, see, my beloved comes. <laughs> I mean, it is just charged with a lot of emotion. There's excitement here. Uh, it, it, it's, it's full of that. He said, behold, see, he comes leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. Whatever these are, their hindrances and their difficulties. There's some sort of separation points there. Uh, but he's coming. He's bounding over the hills. And she compares this bridegroom to a gazelle or a young stag. <laughs> Let's take time to talk about a gazelle for just a minute or a young stag. Um, just saying stag makes you realize we're talking masculine here. Mm -hmm. But she, compa uh, she compares the bridegroom to a gazelle. Gazelles are swift and they're handsome, they're speedy, and they're agile. And because they're so agile, their agility makes them able to traverse geographical obstacles to get to their desired location. So they're very sure-footed. Uh, and notice, she, uh, she, she mentions that he's a gazelle. He's swift, 
He's handsome. He's speedy and agile. He's strong, but he's not violent. She doesn't compare him to a bear. She doesn't compare him to a lion. He's a gazelle. There's a conspicuous splendor and a glorious appearance here. And what we need to recognize, too, is that um, they are sexually eager animals in the spring, which isn't surprising. I mean, I think most, probably most are at that point. But notice in verse, uh, the, the rest of this, she says, Behold, he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, through the lattice, looking through the lattice. He's standing behind the wall. He's gazing through the windows. He's looking through the lattice. And I want you to realize he's not being a peeping Tom here. And we're going to see that because he comes to her with a message. Now, I would think that most, probably most um, commentators regard this as her home, her family home her mother's home, where she lives. Because back in the day, a bridegroom would come and get his bride from the, uh, her parents' house and take, them, take her back to his place, back to his house. So he's outside of the family home, so to speak. And what we see here in verses 10 through 15 is an invitation to intimacy. In verse 10, he says, Arise. And notice he calls her, My love. My beautiful one. My. That's already possession. You see that? That's a possessive pronoun. She is already his. My. He says, Arise. Come away. And now we begin to have an appeal to our senses. We begin to see some senses. Look what happens in verse 11. This is what he says. This is the reason for her to arrive and come away. He says, Behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come. And the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Now, this is the reason for him to say this, for her to come away. The winter's gone. And then verses 12 and 13 is full of indications of this, full of the winter being gone. The early spring rains have ended. Flowers come. Nature is singing. The turtle dove, figs are ripening, vines are blossoming with fragrance. So we get, we get, you know, we get this, the sense of sound. We get the sense of smell. We get this, uh, just the sense of general feeling. Uh, Kelly was saying how, how cold she was when she came in here. And we've, we've talked about that amongst ourselves, how cold it can feel and whatnot. Everything is feeling different. In light of all of this, he says, arise and come away. Notice what he says in verse 14. He says, um, he calls her, oh, my dove. Oh, my dove. 
Dove in ancient cultures has been a symbol of the goddess of love in many ancient cultures, many ancient cultures. So that is something that we wouldn't have, you know, we wouldn't have necessarily picked up on, but that's, that's, um, that's what it is. And, and look at, there's a lot of wooing that's going on here. There's a lot of pretty talk that's going. There's a lot of words of love between the man and the woman. There's affectionate speech. He touches her soul. And when I say he touches her soul, and when I say soul, I'm talking about her very inner being. The words are intended to woo her and to affect her inner being with love language. And then in verse 15, he says, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. It was almost ad nauseum reading the different versions about this. <laughs> He's saying it. She's saying it to him. No, all those virgins that are hanging around are saying this. And let's just look at it at the way it is, okay? There's only two people that this is going to connect with. I think he's saying this to her. Maybe you'd write that up as deology. I don't know. But in literature, back in ancient literature, foxes, they ain't nice. They've always been uh, associated with something very sneaky and evil and this sort of thing. Um, that, that's, how it, that's how it's been. That's how it's been in some ancient literature. But notice what he says. He says, catch the foxes for us, for us. So why wouldn't it be either her saying that to him or him saying that to her? Again, pronouns. The little foxes. You notice he didn't say the big ones because the big ones you can see and you can chase them off. But he says, catch the little foxes that spoil the vineyards for our vineyards are in blossom. Our vineyards are in blossom. The foxes, the little foxes, they are burrowers. They burrow. They get down to the very roots, the foundational roots of a garden. And I want you to remember in Matthew and in Luke, Jesus even made mention about foxes. Remember what he says? The foxes have holes and the birds have of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Remember that? Yep. It was an understood thing. Foxes go into holes. And the little foxes, they're things that you don't think of that much. This is what threaten love relationships. The little foxes are what threatens the love relationships. It's not the big foxes, the ones that you can see and you can chase away. It isn't. It's not that. And wouldn't you know it, those of you that read Daily Bread, about two and a half weeks ago, I couldn't believe this, I have never seen any of Daily Bread ever have any reference to Song of Solomon. And all of a sudden, I'm reading this Daily Bread that talks about the little foxes. Mm -hmm. And 
what Daily Bread said was, tend your garden. What can ruin romance? Things like jealousy, anger. I mean, think about yourself and your husband. Jealousy, anger, deceit. When you're not being totally honest, you're telling a half-truth. Selfishness, wanting it your way. Apathy, disappointments, maybe criticisms. Catch the little foxes. And someone, I think it might have been Jeff, was, I don't know if he said this or if I, I don't know where I picked it up from, but it says, put in the work to guard your relationships. Protect it from the little foxes. I'm looking around here and I don't see anybody that I, that I, this needs to be appropriate with either way. But, um, because you're, because you're a Bible teacher, a lot of times people think, oh, well, you wouldn't mind, you probably wouldn't mind teaching, uh, giving the, giving the charge, giving the special little devotion at my wedding shower or at my bridal shower or or at my um, baby baby shower and I've got to tell you that's one of the hardest things there is I'd rather you say teach the book of first Samuel all in one setting than tell me something like that and I've been able to deflect it a few times I've been able to say well don't you think that you really ought to get someone that knows that person better than I do and I've been able to deflect that a couple of times. And, I mean, I know some of you have been to, to showers that I have done. Um, I can think of a couple right now. But um, I had a good friend ask me that, and that's what I did. I taught about the little foxes. I did. I taught about the little foxes, and I went into great de- detail about that. Um, but it's not something that you usually think about. But you've got to put your work in with the little foxes. You've got to get there and you've got to work on that because it is little stuff, isn't it? It's little stuff. A lot of times it's just that little stuff. And then in verses 16 through 17, this is, I love this. This is beautiful. She accepts his invitation. My beloved is mine, and I am his. You know, this is probably the most beautiful line in all of it. But it says, he grazes among the lilies until the day breaks or the day breathes and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. And this idea of the cleft mountains and see where he's hidden her in the clefts of the rock. This is really, really beautiful because she's with him now in the clefts of the rock. She's up there with him. And cleft means crannies. Or actually, if you look up, if you look up that, if you look up that word, in the, in the Hebrew, it can mean lofty, up high, and it can mean a stronghold or a fortress. 
It's usually rush, uh, rough and uneven, but she's up there in the crannies of the cleft of the rock. She's up there with him, and she's up there experiencing safety and protection and his nearness. And then she can say, my beloved is mine, and I am his. And all night they have been together up there in the heights. Now, we need to realize that this is very sexual. And in many instances, they will talk about leaping over the mountains and whatnot, this being a woman's breast. We're going to see that in some later chapters, so I'm not giving all that stuff away, (laughs) but this is probably what it's talking about, too, or what it has a double entendre type of a thing there. This, I mean, there is a lot of sexuality here, a, a beautiful amount of sexuality that is love language for a married couple. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's, it's, well, there's just nothing wrong with it. I don't know how else we can say, how else we can say that. Um, I don't even know where I put it. I think, I don't know if I even kept it. Um, but there, <laughs> this, this, is a, this is a marriage, and what we need to realize is that, um, oh, I think I know where I put it. Never mind. I'll go back to that. <laughs> uh, let's go ahead and look at, at the next part, because what I want us to see in the next part is, what, how have I got it written? Oh, his story. His story. Remember, we have said all along that Christ is seen in every book of the Bible. Every book of the Old Testament. So, behold, he comes. Look at this. Behold, he comes. He seeks us out. Romans 3. Let's go ahead and look at that. Romans, because I want you to realize something. That Romans 3, Romans 3, once I get here, Romans 3, 10. This is quoting, this is quoting from Isaiah. It says, as it's written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside and together become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This this is taken, this is cited, uh, this is taken from, um, well, it'll tell you, right? It'll tell you that it's cited from, um, not, I said Isaiah, from Psalm 14. And if you see, let's go ahead and look at Psalm 14 because I want you to see how this is filtered in here. Psalm 14 says this, almost, almost identical. Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. 
The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there is any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Look over um, uh, Psalm 53. Psalm 53. So these would be words that are understood. These would be words that are understood. Psalm, what did I say? 53. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity, for there is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away together. They have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So this idea, this idea that um, we are good enough to figure out where God is and we'll go look for him, it's not there. He has to be the one that seeks us out. We don't go looking for him. He seeks us out. And then look at verse 9. It says, behold, uh, he stands, he stands, and I love this. He stands there. It doesn't say he sits. It says he stands. This is resurrected life. Do you remember when, when Stephen, uh, when Stephen, was being stoned, he looked up and saw God. He saw, he saw Jesus bending down, standing. Now, I'm not, Hebrews tells us that he, um, that he ascended, uh, how does it go? He ascended on high and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's there interceding for us. But you know what? He stands too. He doesn't just sit. He stands reaching out to us. He comes looking for us. And notice in verse 10, he said, my beloved, uh, he says, he says, arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Arise. He says it again in verse 13. Arise. There is an irresistible call that we get from the Savior that we can't deny. When he calls us, we can't deny it. It's irresistible. Verse 13 says the same thing, um, where he says, um, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Notice how he uses this word, my love, my beautiful. And again, my, those that he calls are his, He's already taken possession of them. They are his. But he says, my love, my beautiful one. He doesn't call us sinners anymore. Mm. What does he call us? We're called saints. I mean, how beautiful. Mm. How wonderful is that? We're called saints. Do you catch that? Do you see that? Do you realize that? It's such a beautiful thing. Uh, in verse 11, it says, For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. Winter is always a symbol of death. That winter condition of our soul is over with. 
It's over with. And don't you love verse 14? Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, we are hidden. Well, Colossians 3, 3 says your life is hidden with Christ in God. We are totally identified with him in the cleft of the rock. We are there with him. And there's a, look at the fellowship here. Let me hear your sweet voice. How does he hear our sweet voice? In songs of praise and in our daily prayers. He wants to hear our voice. He wants us to come to him and speak to him. Let's, let's do this right now. Let's go to Ephesians. Ephesians. Remember Ephesians? That's, that's, that's what that gal said she would rather us be studying. Ephesians. <laughs> Look at Ephesians 1, 22, verse 22 and 23. And he put... All things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. He, this is God, Jehovah, put all things under Jesus' feet and gave Jesus as the head over all things to the church, which is his body, Jesus' body, and the fullness of Jesus who fills all in all. He's brought up the fact of the church being Jesus's body and that he's ahead of it. Now I want you to go to Ephesians 5 and this is going to be a little bit lengthy. Bear with me. You won't be disappointed because scripture doesn't disappoint us. Ephesians 5 verses 22 through 23. Or I'm sorry, through 33. Wives, Submit yourself to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husband. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh. So we've got a mandate here that men are to be caring and loving toward their wives. He who loves his wife him loves himself, for no one ever hated his own wife, his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife and his self, and let the wife 
see that she respects her husband. And respect is meaning um, have reverence for, is to have reverence for. And this reverence doesn't come from a husband's character or his accomplishments or his personality, but from his God-given mandate to love, to nourish, to cherish, and to give up his life for her. So the health of the harmony, harmonious working of the marriage relationship, the woman is called to submit, and the husband is called to love. Second... Uh, John MacArthur, well, let's talk about these. John MacArthur said, How we should rejoice that our God is absolutely holy, and yet he is loving and gracious to those who are protected by the righteousness of his Son. And Spurgeon said, We are accepted in the garments of the beloved. And Paul Washer said, There's no great men, only sinful men sinful, weak men who belong to a great, merciful God. And they're reflecting on what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And if we're going to become the righteousness of God, and we're going to have the right attitude with our husbands, that's what... Uh, Washer was getting at when he said um, that there's no great men, only sinful weak men to, who belong to a great merciful God. And we need to recognize that that's, he loved us like a bridegroom loves his bride. That's where that love comes from. In marriage, We're not the original. Surprise! We're the copy. We're the copy of it if we are married. We're the copy of it. Recognizing that we are a sinner makes Christ and his work in us precious. Our marriage should reflect that. And yes, if you're a Buddhist and you're married, if you're an animist and you're married, if, if you are somewhere in New Zealand or, or uh, Australia and you're an aboriginal, it doesn't make any difference. Your marriage reflects God's love for the church, his bride. You may not live it. You may not know that because you've not been told that. But anyway, that's how that is. And of all the images that God could choose to capture the intimacy he longs for with us. None captures it better than this most intimate relationship of a bride and groom.